Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. This is the 20th Century Movie Club, Volume 7. And I am joined by my regular co-host for this series, Mike. How are you today? I am doing well today, Dana. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, it's going to be just the two of us today. So we're going to be looking at six movies. And uh, you know the rules. We uh, only select movies that were released before the year 2000. So, Mike, I will turn it over to you for the first pick of Volume 7. So my first pick was actually inspired by a pick you made a couple of episodes ago. You recommended Miracle Mile, and I, I did watch that, and I, I loved it, and I'll talk more about it when we do a, a kind of a catch-up show. But it got me thinking about another movie that came out around the same time that has a very similar vibe. Uh, one of the things I really liked about Miracle Mile was how much it felt like in just such an L.A. movie. I know there's a lot of movies that take place in L.A., but the 80s was really kind of a a period where L.A. itself was a character in a lot of these movies. And and the one that it made me think of and the one I want to recommend for my first movie is Tom Eberhardt's 1984 sci-fi horror comedy Night of the Comet. For those who haven't seen Night of the Comet, as you can probably guess from the title, it basically takes place over a a day when the Earth passes through the tail of a comet that hasn't come by in 65 million years. And unfortunately, as the Earth passes through the comet, one of two things happens. People either turn into red dust or they turn into zombies. And the movie follows two sisters played by Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney who happen to avoid either one of those fates and realizing that they are some of the last people on earth kind of how they navigate the next 24 to 48 hours the movie is funny it's interesting it's it's very much one of those movies that could only have been really made in the 80s and one of the things i really like about it is how nonplussed uh, nonplussed is not the right word but how nonchalant the two sisters are about the fact that they are in now a post-apocalyptic scenario joss whedon's actually cited this as one of his big influences on buffy and it, you can really see that sort of attitude and demeanor in the movie dana have you actually have you seen this one i've seen it once years ago now i'm having very vague memories does this movie open up inside of an arcade it's inside a movie theater but Catherine mary stewart's playing tempest she works at the movie theater and they have a tempest arcade and she's got all the top scores on it okay okay so that's that's exactly the the first image that pops in my mind it was these big you know old-fashioned you know full stand video arcade machines but that's that's about all I can remember from the film but I'm excited to watch that one I think it makes a really nice double feature with Miracle Mile. They, they're, the, the sensibilities in both of them are are very similar. I, I think they would make a nice one-two punch if you wanted to sort of have an 80s LA movie double feature. Just looking at some notes here, because I pulled up uh, Night of the Comet here, um, made on a budget of $700,000. Does it look like a $700,000 film? No, not at all. One of the things that's that's really amazing about it is the way they were able to shoot L.A. in such a way that it looks like there's nobody there. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, if you read any of the behind the scenes stuff, it took some doing to make that shot 
in early mornings. They shot kind of in dead times for traffic, but it really doesn't look like a $700,000 movie. And as the Earth has passed through the comet, the sky turns this kind of red and it's got a it's definitely not like you'd expect to see today with CGI, but it's just got a nice look to it. They really did. Eberhardt really did maximize the amount that he got for the budget. The other thing that's kind of great about it is is the cast is all on board with this being a low budget movie. So they're trying to also maximize what they can get. So like there's a, a great story where Kelly Maroney's character uh, has to get slapped and, and she wasn't comfortable with how she was reacting and she knew they were burning film. So she just told the other actress to just haul off and slap her. Um, there's another part where a gun jams and rather than reshooting, they just work it into the movie uh, because it is a low budget. But when you have a cast that's invested, they turn those low budget weaknesses into strengths. And that's a lot of where Charm in low budget movies comes from. I think anybody that's listened to the show knows that you and I have a certain affinity for low budget movies, especially ones that manage to make that low budget something special. And this is definitely one of those movies. Definitely adding it to the list and I'm looking forward to watching it. For my first pick, I wanted to come up with I was exploring the idea of of doing a theme for this episode. And one of the themes that I was exploring was a great movie that is riddled with just horrible sequels. Now, there's tons of candidates out there, but the one I decided to settle on was a movie that I saw on home video in 1990. It's directed by Ron Underwood. Now, if that name is not super familiar to you, he would go on to direct City Slickers. And the movie I'm talking about is 1990's Tremors. Now, this movie stars Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Michael Gross, Reba McIntyre, Victor Wong, just to name a few. Now, Tremors is one of these interesting films that was made on an $11 million budget. It tells the story of two handymen, Earl and Val, who live in a very, very small town of Perfection, Nevada. And when I say small town, I think the population's about eight. Without getting too much into the uh, the meat of the story, as uh, Earl and Val are handymen who just do odd jobs around the town, essentially for beer money. They finally make a decision that they're going to leave this small town, and on the day they decide to leave, all hell breaks loose in the form of underground creatures that are seemingly coming out of nowhere and attacking and killing off people in and around the town. Now, what makes this movie so special to me, and I think special to a lot of people, is that I think it's it's billed sort of as a comedy horror, but what I love about the film is that... Every single character in the movie is interesting, and they have their own little interesting arc throughout the story. Putting aside Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward's character for a moment, there's a couple in the film played by Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre who are sort of these doomsday preppers and survivalists. And there's a wonderful scene in the movie where they have to deal with one of these underground creatures, and I'm not going to say anything more than that. Another thing I really liked about the movie is it was, made, like I said, made for an $11 million budget. It looks like a $60 million film. The practical effects they use in this thing are fantastic. And it's just a movie that I, I just have so much fun watching. And it has been saddled with some of the absolute worst sequels. I think they've made five sequels so far, all direct-to-video, all direct-to-video on demand. Mike, have you seen Tremors? 
So I actually Tremors is my fourth movie this week. If we had a crossover, Tremors was going to be my backup. And the only reason it didn't make it to the top three is I didn't have time to rewatch it. I like to try and rewatch these things before I recommend them. I love Tremors. This is such a great recommendation. If you haven't seen Tremors, you really are missing out on one of, I think, the later era best monster movies. Uh, The best way I'd describe Tremors is it's kind of the best Joe Dante movie that Joe Dante never directed. There's such an affinity for larger than life characters and you're absolutely right. Like each character has personality. They're well defined. They, you can immediate and they're not just fodder to get eaten they all become people that you care about and want to see survive through this strange scenario that they've found themselves in it also like you said does a good job making use of its limited budget by kind of borrowing from the best monster movies which is you only see the full monsters a couple of times in the movie but they're omnipresent throughout the movie. Uh, and, and so Ron Underwood makes really good use of kind of the unknown to make the monsters feel like they're there and feel like they're bigger than they are. Uh, it's, it's a really smart, well put together movie. Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward play off one another. So great. In fact, they they have an ongoing line that that uh, you know without getting into too many spoilers where Fred Ward keeps saying I plan ahead that way I don't have to do things now I've been saying that line <laughs> since 1990 in my life it's one of those movies that's just worked its way into my regular vocabulary so I love this recommendation I love this movie I, if you haven't seen it I really do hope people watch it just to touch on another point here is that you know with so many horror movies the characters. With the exception of, you know, whoever the, the lead character is, they're, they're always so generic and so disposable. And again, like just, just to reiterate what we've been talking about, I watched this movie last night and everyone from Victor Wong to, you know, <laughs> just, I'm sorry, I, I gush over the character of that Michael Gross and Re- the characters that Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre play because I think they're just absolutely hilarious. They're like the two that want to deal with this problem where everyone else wants to get away. They're like, you know what? Fuck this. We've got the. We've got the goods to handle the situation. The scene involving them is, I, I, I think I rewinded that particular scene and watched it about four times in a row because I just, there's a great line that he says at the end of that scene, which I'm being very vague because I don't want to spoil it for people that haven't seen it. And as I was watching the film, it really did kind of have the Jaws effect because of what you just said about how he makes great use of implying that the creature, I'll, I'll leave, I'll say creature, is around. You know, you look at Jaws, they they could never get the damn shark to work. So Spielberg had to use a lot of different tactics to to make you aware that the shark was present. And and Underwood does very similar things with this film. So I can't recommend it enough. It was such a good time. And I rewatched it yesterday for the first time in I kept 15 years and just had a blast. The one thing I will say that the and you're right, most of the direct to video sequels are not good. You know, I know last year Kevin Bacon was trying to get a an official series sequel on sci-fi and it ended up not happening. The one thing I will say about all the sequels that they do intelligently is they keep Michael Gross. He's in, I think, every single one of the sequels. And he is so great in this movie. And he's so great in the sequels that even though they're not good, he makes at least parts of them, I think, watchable. 
But you're right. He and Reba McIntyre are and Underwood knows how to use them perfectly because they're not the main characters. You know, Val and Earl are, but they're just there to spice everything up. And and he uses them the exact perfect amount. Same with Bobby Jacoby playing Melvin, who's kind of the just one of the biggest douchebags in the entire movie. But Underwood knows how to use him perfectly throughout the movie. So, again, I just I could gush about this one with you. This is such a great pick and a great movie. So what do you got for your second pick? So my second pick is, you know, it's funny. I try and shake up these movies as I make recommendations, but I I tend to find that I keep sometimes recommending movies with the same people or involving the same people. And I, it's not intentional. It's just because I think certain people, I gravitate towards their movies. So my second pick is what I think a lot of people would consider one of the archetypal kind of buddy cop action movies, and that is uh, Martin Bress' 1988 film Midnight Run. For people who haven't seen Midnight Run, uh, Robert De Niro plays a kind of down-on-his-luck bounty hunter who is ordered by Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants. Uh, you know you're in a good movie when it's got Joey Pants in it. Ordered to uh Retrieve, find and retrieve a former mob uh, accountant played by Charles Grodin and bring him back to L.A. And it's about their sort of he without going into too many spoilers, because it's the point of the movie, he finds Charles Grodin very quickly in New York and they have to get across the country in about four or five days or Jack loses out on the bounty and the mob, the FBI, another bounty hunter, all these people are trying to to all get to Charles Grodin. It is a very, very witty dialogue driven movie. It's one of sort of the first times that Robert De Niro really kind of cut loose and and played a predominantly comedy part. And I think it's his best comedy role. He's so good in this. And the way he plays off Charles Grodin is just fantastic. It's one of those buddy cop movies that if you watch any type of buddy cop movie, Shane Black type movie, you really see how this got there first and in most cases did it better. Have you seen Midnight Run, Dana? Uh, A long time ago. And I remember a couple things about the film. One, I remember for being a movie that's all a little over two hours long, I remember it had a really it moved along at a really nice pace and 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 a good clip. And I just remember Charles Grodin just being fantastic in the film. I have to rewatch it before I can get into any real analysis of the film. But I do remember, if I remember, it was chock full of so many great character actors. That's one thing I remember. It absolutely is. In addition to Joey Pants, Dennis Farina plays a mob boss. Uh, If you don't know who Dennis Farina is, we've already recommended a movie with him when we recommended Get Shorty. John Ashton plays the rival bounty hunter. He was in Beverly Hills Cop, which Martin Brest also directed. Yafit Koto plays the FBI agent. This thing is just chock full of 80s character actors, and every one of them is is on point. The best part about Charles Grodin is he has a character that, you know, you'd expect sort of in this type of setup that Robert De Niro would basically be the straight man and Grodin would be the kind of over the top character. Uh, Think of like nothing to lose with Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence, which is a fine movie. But, you know, you've got Martin Lawrence really going over the top in that movie. What this movie does that I think is interesting is Charles Grodin's really the straight man. He just plays it at an even keel throughout the whole movie. And just kind of has these deadpan lines, whereas De Niro's the one who kind of 
he doesn't go over the top. He plays it perfectly, but he's the one that really actually gets to be the funny guy. And it's an interesting dynamic that I think really works because it's taking De Niro and putting him in this position where he's really uncomfortable. And Groden's just kind of trying to play it cool and on the down low throughout the whole movie. Their interaction is great. Their interaction with the other characters is great. Again, I've mentioned him several times, but but Joe Pantoliano is so good in this movie. It's such a Joey Pants performance. One of the things that I, I, I rewatched this last night with my wife, and one of the things that we kind of noticed was, and you've brought this up with other movies, this is an R-rated movie for adults. And De Niro and Joey Pants, man, nobody says fuck like those two guys do and there's about a thousand fucks in this movie i mean this is a profane movie but the way they deliver that word is just almost like art i I wish i could deliver it as well as they do for a word that i say all the time uh so it's just a lot of fun you're right it is two hours it moves it is a there's a couple of parts that are a bit draggy but what's nice is because it's basically a road movie what you have is a bunch of vignettes sort of tied together as each town or stop they you know it's very similar to say something like planes trains and automobiles where it's about their adventures as they're going across the country it moves and it's a lot of fun and uh i i do really just recommend this one all right well i'm looking forward to rewatching that one so for my second pick i was inspired by The subject of Top Secret came up, maybe the first or second episode of this series. And I rewatched Top Secret about two weeks ago, and I absolutely love that movie. And I love Airplane, and I love those movies. But for this episode, I want to recommend The Naked Gun. And I'm going to tell you why I recommend this one, and why I like this movie slightly better an airplane and top secret. Now, I know that might be blasphemous for some people to hear, but there's a reason why I love The Naked Gun a little bit more. I'll get into that in just a moment. So The Naked Gun tells the story of Lieutenant Frank Drebin. He is weaving his way through Los Angeles. He is trying to solve multiple crimes. His partner, who is played by, well, we won't refer to him too often, O.J. Simpson in the film, is gunned down at the beginning of the film and survives. And and Frank Drebin is on the case to discover what happened to his partner. I'm not going to get too much more into the plot of the film because it really doesn't matter. What I love about this film, it is the zany slapstick style of a airplane and top secret. But I think it works slightly better because it is filled with 90% of characters who are just normal people who live in the world that we live in and are experiencing Leslie Nielsen's antics the same way we would experience them in real life. And that's what I think this movie gets so right, more so than Airplane and Top Secret, because Airplane and Top Secret are fucking hilarious films that have so many sight gags. The movies, just like The Naked Gun, the movies require five, maybe even ten viewings to take in all of the comedy. And The Naked Gun is no exception to that rule. But I love the fact that they chose to have so many regular people in this film. And I rewatched the last 30 minutes of this movie this morning. The whole finale that takes place during a baseball game is some of the most laugh-out-loud moments I've ever seen on film. So, Mike, I'm, I know you've seen it, and I'm curious where this movie falls for you in the sort of Abram Zucker universe. 
So this would rank third for me, uh, which isn't to negate Naked Gun. I just happen to like Airplane and Top Secret's my first. I love Top Secret. I think that's the best movie they did. That being said, I think this movie's hilarious. The only thing that I, I think is uh, working against it a little bit, and this is no fault of the movies, is just I liked this series. The t- For those who don't know, this started as a TV series called Police Squad. And the series is, if you haven't been able to see it, try and seek it out because it's phenomenal. This movie, though, is hilarious. It's it's back when Zucker, Zucker and Abrams were still on the top of their game. They were still working well. This was really, you know, Leslie Nielsen, they'd used him in Airplane, but bringing him into this one and making him the lead, he's so good. It Like a lot of their movies, it works best if you've seen the movies that they're taking on. Like there is a conversation that is right out of Dirty Harry that (laughs) if you've seen Dirty Harry is just absolutely fall on the floor hilarious. I, this is this is a rock solid Zucker Zucker and Abrams comedy. It does somewhat fit, I think, with your theme that you kind of brought up when talking about Tremors. In that, I think the two sequels are mediocre to bad. Yeah. Uh, they don't come close to as good as this one is. I think the second one has some merit. The third one was uh, for me a, a slog when I saw it. Um, I haven't seen it since it came out in the theater, but uh, I'm not really kind of chomping at the bit but this one is so good so well put together and one of the things that for people who don't understand why the zucker zucker and abrams formula works and why so many people get it wrong like the uh the seltzer friedberg guys the the the, you know the epic movie guys that that are just not good i i try not to be negative on this show because everybody loves every movie you know movies but they're not great but what people get wrong is a the jokes come at a uh, you know an unbelievable clip but everybody in the movie and you kind of mentioned this Dana everybody in the movie plays everything straight there's no mugging there's no uh hey look at how funny we're being you know Leslie Nielsen is just so deadpan and this type of movie only works if the actors are playing it straight if the actors act like they're in on the joke the whole thing falls apart and they do it perfectly in this movie one of the things that i th- I feel like, you know, talking about the sequels and, and this was again, uh, the naked gun can, the naked gun can kind of came into my mind when I was thinking about movies that had inferior sequels is, you know, David Zucker directed this one and he directed the second one. He did not direct the third one, but I think with the second one and the third one, they stray away from that formula that I think works so well in the first one. And that is that not everyone is playing it straight in those, especially in the third one. I, I tried to just start the third one not too long ago, and it is, it's just as bad as the date movie, epic movie, you know, the latter scary movies, because I still think the, the first two scary movies that the Wayans brothers did, I think they, I think they're, they have some merit to them. It becomes just total, a total zany fest with, especially with part three, you know, tar- part two does have a couple, I think, laugh out loud moments, but nowhere near the quality of the first one. And I think it's because the characters are not playing it straight. Yeah, I agree. It's so essential. You know, if you think of Robert Hayes in Airplane and how he never even cracks a smile throughout that entire movie or the way Leslie Nielsen plays this one or even like Val Kilmer in Top Secret is a little more 
in on the joke, but he's also playing a 1950s teen heartthrob character. So he's got to be a little larger than life. But again, everybody else around him is playing it deadly serious. They they might as well be in a Bergman film for how serious they are playing these, these roles. And that's what makes it work. As soon as even one character starts mugging, the entire house of cards falls down and the movies just don't work anymore. So one of the reasons I actually don't love I, I still think Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part do have some funny stuff in them, but I always felt like Charlie Sheen was acting a little too much like he was in on the joke in those movies. And that that's one of the problems that I sort of have with them, why I think they're lesser tier. They're still funny. It's hard not to laugh at them, but they're not airplane top secret or naked gun yeah see and i'm gonna go even further than that and say that i I did see both see both hot shots movies in the theater and you know i didn't really pick up on why i didn't like them but your your analysis of why these films don't work is is so spot on i can clearly understand now why i didn't like the hot shots movies in fact if i remember correctly i think i even liked hot shots part deux better than the first one I, I'm not 100%. I have to, I'd have to go back and rewatch them, but to be honest with you, I really don't want to. To me, they're much inferior films to what the uh, Zucker Zucker Abrams guys were doing. What is your third pick for the episode? So my third pick is kind of a movie that I think is it's not a perfect movie, but I think it's perfect for this podcast because it it was a movie that came out in 1997. It was a relatively decent box office success at the time it was critically uh well received and it sort of feels like it's just fallen off the radar it feels like it's a movie that's ripe for rediscovery and it's um jonathan mostow's breakdown for those who haven't seen it breakdown stars kurt russell and kathleen quinlan as a couple driving to san diego i believe through the highways in the desert and their vehicle breaks down Kathleen Quinlan takes a ride with a trucker back to a gas station to try and get help. Kurt Russell figures out how to fix the car. I won't get into spoilers about fixing the car. Goes back to the gas station and Kathleen Quinlan's disappeared. And thus begins a frantic attempt on Kurt Russell's part to try and find his wife. The less I say about this movie, the better, because it's a thriller. It involves a lot of twists and turns, but it is tense it moves. Mostel's a director who I I really kind of feel bad that he didn't become a bigger deal. He did this. He did U571, both of which are tense, well done uh, Hollywood movies. And then he did Terminator 3, which I'm going to be controversial here and say I actually like because everybody seems to hate it. But I sort of feel like that kind of just brought his career to a grinding halt. He's still done some stuff and and worked, but I really thought he was going to be kind of one of the next big Hollywood directors. Um, And he just, he never became that. But Breakdown, if you're looking for a tense action thriller, especially one where your main character is played by Kurt motherfucking Russell, this is a good movie to watch. I really dig this one. Have you seen Breakdown, Dana? Yes, I have. And I've got uh, quite a bit to unpack here based on everything you just said here. So first of all, I'll stay heavily away from spoilers. This, to me, is Jonathan Mostow's best film. Now, some people may say U571, which I think is an excellent, excellent movie. And yeah, very tense. Great. I mean, we got Bill Paxton. You got Matthew McConaughey. It, it, that's a great film. I still like breakdown as far as Jonathan Mostow films for a couple of reasons. One, 
I love the mystery of sort of how the story starts to unfold and why everything is happening. But we cannot talk about Breakdown without talking about one of the best and greatest character actors of all time, and that is J.T. Walsh, who sadly passed away a year after this film's release. He is one of my all-time favorite character actors. I think he is fantastic. And he passed away, I think it's 52 or 53, something like that. Like, we lost a gem with this guy. Now, again, staying away from spoilers from Breakdown, I think it's a phenomenal movie. I saw it in the theater. I remember seeing it, and it, it was tense, and it was exciting, and the sort of the climactic finale is incredible. And Jonathan Mostow, now you said you like Terminator 3. Terminator 3, for me, was one of the biggest cinematic letdowns of my life. And that is only because I am such a huge fan of Terminator 2 that I it, 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 Spielberg could have directed Terminator 3 and it probably would have been a big letdown. Like it just, for me, it just fell completely flat. The movie made half a billion dollars. So it's, I, I, you, you say, you say that you feel like it kind of, do you feel like that's the movie that derailed his career? Well, it made a half a billion dollars, but I just, I pulled him up on IMDb here and he directed Terminator 3 in 2003 and then didn't direct another movie until Surrogates, (sighs) which admittedly is not good in 2009. So, you know, I don't know. What happened uh, with Jonathan Mostow in that in that time period? I I just know that I think we we missed out on a, an impressive, potentially impressive director. I don't know if it's because of Terminator Three or if something else. You know, for all I know, maybe people just didn't like him. Maybe he was just kind of a jerk on set. I don't have any. I'm not saying that he was because I don't have anything that that would say that. But I just. The one-two punch of Breakdown in U571 was so fantastic that I really do feel like he he could have been doing something special, and, and I don't know why that didn't happen. And I don't want to get into a ter- – I mean, you and I could do an entire podcast on the Terminator movies uh, because – Obviously, there's a lot to say. I like Terminator 3. I know that I'm the weird one on that. I fully admit people don't like Terminator 3. They love Terminator 2. I have some issues with Terminator 2. And and Ooh. as you guys listen oh. to the podcast, what? hold on, what? I'll explain it. Hold on. What? <laughs> as, as you guys listen to the podcast, you'll understand that I don't love time travel in movies, period. If it doesn't involve Van Damme doing the splits on a kitchen counter, I'm not really a big time travel guy. And so all my problems with Terminator 2 are just personal about time travel movies. It's not that I think Terminator 2 is a bad movie or anything like that. And I know I'm going to get lit up on Twitter for this. I just happen to like the way Terminator 3 handles the time travel better than Terminator 2. And that's what I responded to. But regardless, Breakdown is a phenomenal movie. Whatever you guys think of Terminator 3, Breakdown is solid. I agree with you, Dana. I think it's Mostow's best movie. Uh, I think that U571 is great, but Breakdown is so tense and paced so well. And we really had around the late 90s, I mean, Kurt Russell has had lots of different stages in his career where he's been awesome. To quote, our friend Patrick Bromley, it's the Kurt Russell rule. Kurt Russell rules. But late 90s, we had some some quality A-plus Kurt Russell. And Breakdown is definitely one of those movies where he's just giving such a good performance because he's so believable as this frantic, scared husband, but also so believable as this frantic, scared husband who then 
is willing to do whatever it takes to find his wife. And 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 Kurt Russell is such perfect casting for this role. And the last thing I, I kind of want to say on this is you're right about J.T. Walsh. We lost a phenomenal character actor. He's already been in a couple of movies we've recommended. He's great in A Few Good Men. Uh, he, he never gave... I don't care how bad the movie he was in may have been. And he wasn't in that many bad movies. But even if you think a movie he was in was bad, he never gave a bad performance. He was great in everything he did. I'll always remember him. A movie that won't get, at least on my end, probably won't get recommended on this show is Outbreak. But he has an uncredited scene in Outbreak and he walks in for about three minutes and literally just destroys the movie, just blows everybody off the screen in like a three minute uncredited cameo. And this is a movie with Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo and Cuba Gooding Jr. And J.T. Walsh is what you remember from that movie. That's how good he is. So this was one of his last movies, and he brings it in this one. He's so good in this one. This one is definitely a stay tuned, but the opening monologue that he gives in Sling Blade is absolutely chilling. Just chilling. Agreed. I can't let you walk away from one thing you said about Terminator 3. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm sorry, but if, if I don't ask this question... Uh, it's going to be weighing on me until Mike and I decide to do a complete Terminator retrospective, which I think we're already in the in the works. So at the end of Terminator 2, all remnants of the T-800 are destroyed. The chip goes into the lava. The arm goes into the lava. Arnold to the lava. Major spoiler alerts for people that haven't seen Terminator 2. Thus rendering all items that had been traveled back from the future, they're gone. Zipped. Gone. So, in Terminator 3, when John Connor says to the new T-800, we stopped Judgment Day from happening, he says Judgment Day was inevitable. How do you dis- how do you explain that? So, one, this is one of the, the problems I have with, I'm so hesitant to even get into this. My <laughs> mentions are just going to be toast. <laughs> One of the problems that I have with Terminator 2 is it's a fixed loop, right? If they destroy Cyberdyne, then there's never an initial Terminator to come back in 1984, which means Kyle Reese never comes back, which means John Connor's never born, which means Sarah Connor never stops Judgment Day, so Judgment Day occurs. It's a loop. It's a whole big thing. Uh, what I like, so there are can I just, I'm sorry, can I just say one thing about that? Yeah. yeah. I'm familiar with that paradox. You're absolutely right. The Skynet paradox. It it yeah. has it has to happen. It always is happening. It always happens. So you're right. All right. So okay. Please, I'm sorry. Well, and let me just say really quick before: Are you a Doctor Who fan at all, Dana? I, you know what? I've never seen a Doctor Who episode. Don't kill so me, Twitter. The, Don't kill me. The way the way time travel works in Doctor Who is that certain things, Farscape, which is also a great sci-fi show, kind of has an episode that deals with with this, where time is sort of elastic. It can bulge out at the ends, but there are certain fixed points in time that cannot be changed. And those fixed points, that's always been the time travel that I've sort of resonated with. And that's why I like Terminator 3, because it's basically saying we can change the details of Judgment Day, but Judgment Day is a fixed point in time. Judgment Day is going to happen no matter what we do. And I love the sort of existential bleakness of that, that on one hand, Judgment Day is always going to happen. But on the other hand, John Connor was always going to be 
the savior of humanity and, and nothing was going to change it. Now, for a lot of people, I feel like they don't like that because it makes them feel like, well, then why the hell did I just watch this movie? Well, because you watched Arnold, you know, punch another robot in the face for an hour and a half. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's why Terminator 3 responded to me. Am I going to sit here and say that Terminator 3 is a better movie than Cameron's Terminator 2? Absolutely not. I just happen to like the time travel component of Terminator 3 better than Terminator 2. All right. Fair enough. We'll do our complete Terminator analysis of all five and soon to be six Terminator films. I would be down. All right. Let's plan that. That sounds like a good one. All right. So for my third pick, I wanted to go with a movie that was released in 1991. It was made on a $24 million budget, had a $65 million box office return. In keeping with the themes of a lot of the movies we talked about, Breakdown was rated R, Midnight Run was rated R. You know, Tremors wasn't, but uh, but this one is also an R-rated buddy cop film. And it is directed by good friend of the show, John Badham. And that is 1991's The Hard Way, starring Michael J. Fox and James Woods. Now, without getting too much into the details, the, the basic plot of the film is that James Woods' character, his name is Lieutenant John Moss. Now, he is a tough-as-nails New York City detective, and he is he's hot on the trail of a serial killer in New York who taunts the police by calling them and letting them know that he is going to be, you know, committing another crime. There's a B-plot in the film where Michael J. Fox's character is a very famous actor by the name of Nick Lang. And he has found himself in a rut where he's starring in sequel after sequel of the same character, you know, the bland action film. And he wants to play a much more serious role. And a role becomes available. The director of that movie is not interested in him because he is so typecast as this sort of generic action hero that Nick Lang comes up with a solution. He is going to go to New York City and he is going to go undercover and pretend to be a police officer. And he is assigned to James Wood's character who wants nothing to do with him. The movie quickly becomes a fish-out-of-water story for Nick Lang as he is assigned to Lieutenant Moss's detail in his unit. Gets a real-world look of what it's like to be a gritty New York detective. Now, I'm not going to say more than that, except that the movie is very funny, also action-packed, and has great performances from Stephen Lang, Annabella Shiora, Delroy Linden, Louis Guzman, LL Cool J, and Penny Marshall. Mike, have you seen The Hard Way? It's been a while since I've seen it, um, but I enjoy it. I think it's a well-put-together movie. You know, one of the things that uh, I think will kind of come up, and we've mentioned him a couple times, like you said, friend of the podcast, John Batham, is just how consistently reliable Batham was throughout the 80s and early 90s. He, he just was such a consistently dependable director. What I kind of want to talk about is something that has come up a little bit with some people on Twitter. Um, our our friend Jarrett brought up a, a movie that he kind of wants me to talk about at some point. <sighs> we kind of need to talk about the James Woods thing here. And, and what I sort of want to talk about is just how each person is responsible for separating the art from the arts. For those who don't know, James Woods has, uh, you may agree with him, but I will not speak for anybody else on this show, but I think he's become an absolutely terrible human being. How do I watch a James Woods movie knowing what he's become? Because for me, it's hard to put that out of my mind. And the way I sort of reconcile it is I acknowledge it, but I'm still able 
most of the time to enjoy movies with people who I have later found out are terrible people. Now, that's not always possible. Uh, There is a movie that I and I won't get into it now, but there's a movie that I have always loved that involves somebody that's turned out to be an absolute monster that I've always wanted to talk about on this show. And I don't know. I still am trying to figure out how to approach it. In this case, we've got an older movie that came out well before James Woods appears to have turned into modern James Woods. I think it's fine to enjoy this movie. I think it's an entertaining, likable movie. And the one thing that I always keep in mind is a lot of other people worked on this movie who aren't terrible people and watch it for them. Watch it for Michael J. Fox, who is an absolute prince among human beings. This is, if you like buddy cop movies, it's a good one. Batam directs the hell out of action. The comedy's great. I think this is a great recommendation. It's a perfect recommendation for this show. And I really struggled with like I'm no, I, I, I'm not naive to sort of what James Woods has become. And you know, you said you speak only for yourself, and I'll I'll go ahead and throw it out there. You speak for me as well. You know, in the sense that I, first of all, I don't I don't follow him on social media. I don't follow anything he posts on social media. And the man has clearly gone off the deep fucking end. And you know, I'm not making excuses for him. I just choose to ignore him. But I'm, at the same time, you know, I rewatched this film, and as I'm watching the movie, I, I, I wasn't seeing James Woods, the person he is today. I was just seeing Lieutenant John Moss. He plays the character very well in the film, and I absolutely love Michael J. Fox, and he's a stay tuned for probably a few more movies on this series. But, you know, yeah, you're right. There's no denying that James Woods is not uh, a great human being at this point. And I, he may, he maybe, he wasn't back then. But that, that's the million dollar question is how do you separate the actor from the art? And, uh, you know, I was toying with the idea of doing the movie Digstown. And again, the James Wood things came up and I went with the hard way because I think it is dual cast. I think it is both a Michael J. Fox film and James Woods films, whereas Digstown is purely a, you know, it's really a James Woods films, even though Louis Gossett Jr. is phenomenal in that movie. So it's, it's, you're right. It's a tough situation. And there are, as the years have gone by, there are many actors and and actresses that have uh, turned out not to be great people. And it's, it's a tough question. I mean, it's probably an episode and it's own to discuss, you know, how do you do this? Is there some people that you just say, that's it, I can't, they're off, I can't watch anything they do? You know, it's it's a tough, it's a kind of a tough situation to be in right now. It is, and it's, I think for a show that is focused on movies from before the year 2000, I think it's something, you know, that's kind of why I'm glad you recommended this, because I've been wanting to talk about this uh, for a while, you know, Everybody, I think, has to decide what their own line is. Uh, I have people who I really like and respect who will still watch Woody Allen movies for me. Woody Allen's dead. I I can't watch a Woody Allen movie. This one, because I agree with you. When you watch a James Woods movie like this one, you're just seeing his character because he was such a good actor. I guess what I would want to say is for anybody that's listening to this podcast, we recommend these movies because we want you to watch them. But we also understand if we make a recommendation and you're like, I can't watch that movie because X, Y or Z person is in it. We get that. That is entirely and we're certainly not ever going to give you shit or judge you for that. Everybody needs to decide. And we're, we're finding out more and more about people who we grew up liking aren't 
the 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 greatest people. Um, you know, the one that Jarrett wanted us to talk about, and I'm sure it will come up because I think it's a movie worth talking about, is Under Siege. And for people who don't know, Steven Seagal is a goddamn monster. And so trying to figure out, you know, how to talk about that movie while addressing that is is a challenge. But that doesn't mean the movies don't have value and the movies shouldn't be watched. I just think everybody has to decide what that line is. This is a movie that I would watch. I wouldn't blame somebody if they decided not to. Yeah, and and let's you know, lest we forget, just you know, thirty minutes earlier, I recommended uh, the Naked Gun, which I mean, O.J. Simpson is he's very limited in the film. I think he's only got two two scenes in the entire movie, and for some people, that's a deal breaker, and I I understand that, and that's that's also why I I really teetered on whether or not I should recommend that movie as well. But at the same time, it's, it's, and, you know, if people say they don't want to watch it, I'll, I'll completely understand. Like it's a tough, it's a tough situation to put ourselves in. And it's, it's probably not the, the, the this is probably not the last time that this conversation is going to come up on that show, uh, come up on this show. It's not. And the, the reality is if we're trying to recommend movies from before the year 2000 and we focus on finding ones that aren't problematic in some way, we're going to have five fucking movies to recommend and this show will be over before we know it. It's just I, I think this is a perfect example of we acknowledge that it stars James Woods. We still say it's a Damn entertaining movie. John Badham directs the hell out of it. Michael J. Fox acts the hell out of it. And if you're comfortable with it, you should check it out and see it because I think it's a damn entertaining film. And I, I think it's a good recommendation. We'll certainly invite the listeners to chime in on this conversation. And you can all, you know, I'll go over the uh, how you can reach us in a moment. But uh, what we like to do at the end of each episode is we like to let the listeners know where they can find and watch the film. So, Mike, I will start with you. Where can we find your recommendations this week? Sure. Uh, so Night of the Comet is streaming for free on Tubi and Voodoo, ad supported, but the ads are fairly minimal and it's a great way to see the movie. There's also a really nice a couple years ago, Shout Factory put out a really nice Blu-ray. Midnight Run is streaming everywhere that you can rent movies. If you have a Showtime or Showtime Anywhere subscription, it's streaming for free on Showtime. And likewise, uh, Breakdown is streaming anywhere you can rent movies, Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, but it's also streaming on Showtime if you have a Showtime subscription. So my first pick of the episode was Tremors, which is available to rent and buy on all major platforms. And if you have a Stars subscription, you can watch the movie on the star streaming app I, and my second pick of the episode was the naked gun from the files of the police squad which is again available to rent and buy on, on all major platforms and if you have the showtime app it is also available to watch for free on the showtime app and my third pick of the episode the hard way uh, again available to rent on all major platforms and it is available to stream for free on the stars app okay so mike if people want to follow you on social media I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will find our continually updating list of movies we recommend on the 20th Century Movie Club. I update them uh, about 48 hours after the episode airs so that, you know, we give people a chance to watch it. I just updated for volume six. So we are currently up to 42 movies recommended on this show. We are making our way through the 20th century with haste. Uh, so please follow me there. Yeah, that that's 
that's incredible. I can't wait that number gets up into the 500 area because I'll tell you, you know, trying to put these, putting these lists together, it's, it's not difficult to put the list together. It's just which ones do you want to talk about on each particular episode? If you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me on Twitter at my personal Twitter page is at Dana Buckler. You can email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. And for those of you that have emailed the show, I want you to know that I have read your emails. Some of you I have reached out to and in the next episode, we're going to read some of those emails. So keep them coming. And Mike, thanks again. Thank you. Excellent. And my name is Dana Buckler. And thank you so much for listening. Oh, Drebin. I don't want any more trouble like you had last year on the South Side. Understand? That's my policy. Yes. Well, when I see five weirdos dressed in togas stabbing a guy in the middle of the park in full view of a hundred people, I shoot the bastards. That's my policy. That was a Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, you moron. You killed five actors. Good ones.